Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Hello, uh, my name is Joshua, and I'll be doing our scripture reading for today. Um, our passage will be in Joshua 24, verses 1 through 15, and I'll be reading from the NIV version. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, And I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat, from green, or, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Thanks, Josh. I I thought it would be appropriate to have someone named Joshua read words first spoken by a man named Joshua. And because he is soon to be my son-in-law, I think he probably couldn't say no. And so I'm I'm grateful. (laughs) I really love that passage, and at this time of year, as many of us are thinking about what lies ahead, taking stock of our lives, I want to turn to this passage for some guidance. It's our first Sunday of the new year together, and I want to welcome you to service. I really hope that you have had a little bit of time to celebrate with people that you love, to get a little bit of rest, because a new year is starting, and as we start the new year... We need to do so from a place of restedness and centeredness and optimism. So I hope that you've been able to have that. If it's been really busy for you, I strongly encourage you to hold up a timeout sign to everybody around you. And this week, take a little time to just breathe and rest and get ready for the new year. Title of the message this morning is Choose for Yourselves, and it comes from the most familiar line out of this whole passage. If you think about the nature of time, I just heard on a podcast this week, the the host said, I think New Year's is kind of stupid. And I think what he was trying to say is this, uh, you know, it's like time just keeps rolling forward one day after another. December 31st was a Saturday. January 1st was another Sunday. Saturdays of Sundays have followed Saturdays forever. And so what's the big deal? Why do we make a big deal out of this particular day over others? And so some people find that to be silly and arbitrary. 
But for as long as human civilizations have existed, people have devised ways to mark time because if we can't do that, I think something in our human nature will go insane. We can't just exist without having some framework to mark our progress and the movement of our lives through time. And so for many, many civilizations, there have been cyclical ways of measuring time. Calendars, where in our Gregorian calendar that we've been using, you know, we mark life in years 365 days at a time. And that might seem arbitrary to some people, but I think it's a really important occasion to pause and say, this is the start of something new, even though it's just another day. It's a good point in my life and in your life to take stock of where we've come from, where we are right now, and where our lives appear to be headed, given the trajectory we're on right now. How do you truly feel about where you are? Is, is your state of life right now something chosen? Is it something chosen for you? Are you on autopilot or are you driving somewhere? I can't tell you how many times I've had appointments uh, somewhere else to start my day and I mindlessly end up in the parking lot of our church building. I'm like, why am I here? Because I drive there every day and so I'm late to an appointment that I could have been on time for because my brain kicked into autopilot and I just ended up going where habit took me. A lot of us, our lives end up feeling like that because we're not really thinking or monitoring how is my state, how is my heart, how is my will, my mind, my intent, is my life today the product of feeling guided by God, making intentional choices, having a sense of my true wellness or my state of being, or am I just coasting on currents created by others? I want to turn to this passage that Joshua read for us to seek God's guidance for us at a time of the year when many of us are thinking about taking stock and charting a course for the future. And to do that, I want to set a little context for the passage Joshua just read. What was going on when Joshua spoke those words? Well, we all know the name Moses, probably less familiar with Joshua, but most people even outside the church know Moses. And Moses and an entire generation of people who had been freed from slavery in Egypt, had by this time died and were not going to enter the promised land. Joshua had been leading Israel as the second generation leader and had begun the conquest of the promised land called Canaan. They'd enjoyed a number of military victories, and for many years now, uh, God had granted peace from their enemies. There, there had been no war for a while, and so in this context, Joshua and the people are beginning to settle the promised land. As Joshua calls the people together, he has grown old, he's grown frail and ill, and he senses that the end of his earthly life is approaching, and so he's gathered everyone around him, and what, we've, what Joshua read for us this morning was essentially Joshua's farewell speech. It's his parting words to the people he's led for his entire life. And that's the context in which he offers these famous words of invitation and challenge. Now, probably the most well-known words in this whole passage are in verse 15, where he says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And then we skip a few lines and we say, but as for me and my household, what? We will serve the Lord. How many of you have that cross-stitched somewhere on the wall in your house or... Right? Some people have it in those uh, stickers. It's, it's very common. You walk into a house, they either have the Lord's Prayer or that uh, painting of a, an old guy praying over a, a piece of bread, or you have the Serenity Prayer, or you have that, right? Those are the most famous, well-known words, and they are the centerpiece of Joshua's farewell speech. But one thing I really treasure is that Joshua doesn't just jump immediately to a word of challenge and recommitment. He begins in a very interesting way. He begins with, the, the, if this is a 15-verse passage, 13 of those verses are spent with Joshua taking them down a very abridged version of memory lane. He recites their history. And if you know the history of Israel, what Joshua read, though it felt long, it's as cliff notes as possible, right? 
Do they still use Cliff's Notes? I think they're called Spark Notes now, right? Whatever they're called. It's such a condensed version of their story. He reminds them of all kinds of things. He reminds them of how he chose their people from among all the peoples of the world. He chose their ancestors. He talks about how their ancestor Jacob had come into Egypt to be freed from from famine, saved from famine, and had multiplied so much that they become a nation in that place. How they had fallen into captivity, been freed from that how they were promised a rich, beautiful land. And as they were heading there, one after another, God granted them military victories. So he's recounting the story of their origins, of their ups and downs, of the many victories that he's granted, how even as Balaam tried to give false prophecy curses, he turned those curses into blessings. And then finally, in his last words of this memory lane, he says, you are now living in lands and in cities that you did not build, and you're eating from food sources you did not cultivate. Everything you're enjoying right now was built by other hands and given to you by my hand. So here's what God is doing, is before he calls them or us to any kind of recommitment, he is reminding them of the long history of his commitment to them. This is so important because I think we've all experienced life under people, under the authority and leadership of people who kept asking us for new things. I demand loyalty. I demand uh, faithfulness. I demand obedience. I demand commitment. And yet if we struggle to look at it, we're like, but what have you ever done for me? God isn't that way at all. Some of us may have worked for bosses like that or studied under teachers like that. Maybe grew up under parents like that. But our God never asks us for a commitment before he first demonstrates his commitment to us. In fact, I think it's insane to offer the whole of your life to a being who hasn't demonstrated that to you. You may call it religious faithfulness, but I think it's insanity to give everything I have to someone that I'm not sure where I stand with them. God doesn't ask us to do that. That's the good news, is he always shows us this is the long history of the way I have always been there with you, for you. You are my people, and I'm asking you to make me your God. What's noteworthy in this stroll down memory lane are all the things that are not listed. Have you ever noticed that this reads a little bit like most people's social media feeds? It's all the highlights, the good parts. You're like, where's the picture of you and your spouse right after a big fight or your kid who has locked his room door and won't open up? Where's how messy your house looks right now or all of that, right? The throw up your dog just made in the kitchen. We don't show that stuff. And yet that's also a very legitimate part of our story. The funny little bad things and the serious bad things, that's a very real, very honest part of each of our stories. A lot of things weren't listed. The the many people who died in those battles, even though God granted the final victory, it wasn't like none of us died and all of them died. Israelites died fighting wars. People hearing Joshua's words had lost a brother or a father or a son in those battles. They had eaten the same food and lived as nomads out of tents for 40 years. An entire generation, their fathers and their grandfathers, their mothers and their grandmothers, all perished, waiting, journeying to get to a land which they would never see. The pain of that loss stuck with them. They had faced hostility at every turn. Even their 40 years of wandering through the desert is only briefly mentioned. And yet those are very real parts of their story too. I think that's some of the pushback we feel when we read these long lists of blessings. are like, yes, those things may be true, but there's so much pain and so much loss in my story as well. And we have to reconcile the tension that creates for us Here's the truth. I think those hard parts of our story would be there regardless. 
and that's a hard thing to recognize, is that we live in a broken world. It is so imperfect, full of pain and sin. And the actions and words of other people have deeply broken us. And our own words and actions have deeply broken other people. Both of those things are true. And if it were not for God, that would be the story arc of most of us, is we do our best to have a good life, and the world does its best to make our lives bad, and we seem to be partnering with the world to make a lot of messes for ourselves. And so the stories of loss and pain are a big part of just life in a fallen world. But every once in a while, when you look back on your story, the storyline takes a different turn, an unexpected, undeserved turn. There are moments, days, even weeks and years where there's so much grace, so much mercy, so much blessing, even against the backdrop of pain. And in all those times when that story arc takes a different turn, it's God writing a new storyline. And I believe what Joshua is saying to Israel is there has been very memorable points of pain and loss in your story. But I challenge and I invite you to look back at your story and see that so many points in that story, amazing things happened that are not what should have happened. Jacob was living in Israel when a famine struck. And though he was fairly well off, He and his entire line would have died had they not been rescued by the son which they sold into slavery. That's a storyline that shouldn't have happened. Jacob and his whole family line should have perished from the earth, but they lived because of a miraculous provision from the least expected place in their lives. Then that story took another bad turn. As they grew more and more numerous, the Egyptians got threatened, and they enslaved the people, and for 400 years they groaned laboring for people who own them. And yet, God takes a man with a speech impediment and a criminal history, elevates him to the very top, and then sends him out, and with his very stuttering leadership, God frees the entire people. They are slaves no more. In each of these points, there was no power among those people to save themselves. And yet God saved them by his own hand. There are a lot of problems that we can save ourselves from, right? I mean, and I think that seems to be the goal of most of humanity is how do I gather enough power and resources and networks to make sure that if I get into trouble, I can get myself out of trouble. And truth be told, and I'm I'm including myself in that, the vast majority of hiccups and bad turns in my life I can handle with my family and my friends. But in our stories, there have been times where we felt completely powerless to do anything about the situation we were in. Some of you are there right now. I remember when I was single, and I thought, how do I find someone who will actually love me as much as I love them? Do you realize how powerless the feeling that is? Like, you could fall in love with anybody, right? You could love someone so bad. Oh, I love you. I love you like an infinity. And they're like, thanks. That's nice for you. But you can't make them love you back, can you? Like you'll you'll be alone on this earth until you find someone who can do that. That's a miracle every time it happens. It's a miracle. We are powerless to create that reality. And yet somehow, for so many people, God does that. There are situations I've been in, you've been in, where we've exhausted every resource and we find ourselves still stuck in that place. I can't move. There's not much I can do about this. These are forces beyond my control. And yet somehow, out of that mess, out of that stuckness, God delivers us in the most miraculous way. I look out at this room. I've walked with many of you for years. Some of your stories I know are miracles written by God Lives that are in a place today that they should never have been apart from the intervention of God. You've along the way developed strong character, amazing coping skills, but those things alone did not get you where you are today. 
at important points where we were powerless, God stepped in and was very powerful. And so he offers us the invitation to look backwards before we make a commitment about today and tomorrow. And the invitation is this. Who has God been to you over the course of your story? How has God done things in your life which apart from him, your life will look very different today? How has he rescued you when you were helpless to rescue yourself? How has he blessed and provided for you in ways that were unearned and undeserved? Things just like the land and the cities, things you did not build that were just given to you. I count my family of origin among those blessings. I had no say in which family I would pop into this world through, and yet the family God gave me is one of the greatest treasures he could have given me. When has God forgiven you when you struggled even to forgive yourself? When has God sprung new life out of the ashes of something that died where you thought there's no future? Where do I hope again? Where do I dare to love again? And yet God has sprung up new life for you. What's interesting is that in this stroll through memory lane, God doesn't just rewind the tape like three weeks or three months. He goes back 400 plus years. Because let me tell you my long history of faithfulness with you, and it starts centuries ago with men and women you've never met, but you've heard the stories. And I think he does that because sometimes we struggle to see the faithfulness of God in our lives in our recent past. But if we go back far enough, you see him. We would not be here this morning together if that were not true. You see his faithfulness. And for a lot of us, let's be honest, our recent memory is a hot mess. The last three, five years, I've been really hard for a lot of us. But God is in our story And the first invitation is to look back and see him, see his clear hand of faithfulness, of grace and mercy written through the story of your life, even in the midst of pain and loss that remain today. It's not good to be too hasty in making a commitment to God. It's good that we do that, make a commitment to God, but it's not good to do it hastily. Because for that commitment to endure, it has to be a genuine response to the goodness of God that we see. And so I invite you not to just look back a few weeks, but look back from the start of your earliest memories of God and recount the story of God who has shown up in your life, probably even before you were born. An American person came and risked cholera, death, to bring the gospel to Korea and reached my paternal grandmother, who then raised my father against all odds in the faith of Jesus Christ. And that faith, though it didn't stick for all of my my dad's siblings, somehow rooted deeply in his soul. He has many siblings. Only a couple followed the Lord. The rest never, ever followed him. And then he met my mom, and they brought us to the United States, and they raised us up in a genuine faith. None of these things I had any responsibility for. This was the story of God written in my life before I was even created. Where is God in your life? Look for him. Acknowledge his faithful presence woven through your story, because it is that good God to whom we will recommit our lives. Let me give you a second point. Joshua then clearly, boldly calls the people to make a choice. I was not great at this when I first became a salesman at age 16. Um, I was a clothing salesman at a store called Silverman's, which looking back now, I realize it was for second-tier nightclub-type wear. And uh, 
my manager, he basically taught me how to sell. And he said, here's how you sell. You lie your butt off and tell them everything looks awesome on them. So I'm like, okay. And I did that pretty well. I'm like, dude, that shirt. I've seen six guys try it on. It does, it's just like it's made for you. And he's like, really? I'm like, you know what else? There's another one over here. This one also. Oh, my gosh. And I would but the thing is, these guys would feel so good, and then half of them would walk out with nothing. And my, my manager said, Dave, you can't just fluff them up and, and flatter them. You've got to ask them to buy stuff. That's how you... And so this is important because I think Joshua isn't just reminding them how good God is so they can go home and go, isn't God so good? Like that's important, but that's not enough. It's just go, oh, God is so good to us. We're so lucky. Awesome. It is this. He says, see how good God is. Now you choose him. You choose him. Make a choice. Because not making a choice is making a choice. You will serve something. No one lives for nothing. No one. Everyone lives for something. And so he says, you choose what you live for. Don't just mindlessly follow it. You choose it. And though he's addressing a whole nation, it's clear that this is meant to be a personal, individual, and household response as well. Here's the choice presented. You put away all the old gods, the other gods you were tempted to worship in other lands. And you choose the God who has revealed himself to you as an Israelite. What's interesting about those other gods is they're always associated with the lands that people lived in. He says, when you were over there, you worshiped the gods everyone worshiped. And isn't that the way it works? That's the nature of idolatry. We don't make up the idols. We sort of imbibe the idols from the air around us. What is everyone living for? Because that's the game I want to compete in and win. Right? So there are some friend groups where the, the most valued thing is intelligence, so you're working really hard to be the smartest dude in that group. There are other friend groups where the, the most important thing is to be beautiful or rich or well-traveled. So you're trying to figure out in my circle, in my community, what is most prized and I will live for that. What do I feel comfortable worshiping because everyone else around me worships the same thing? And that's the way Israelites picked up idols, other false gods along the way, is they realized everyone in this land values this. Why don't we just value it too? So Joshua makes a clear call to them. You take those other gods which you were tempted to worship and you put them away. And you fix your eyes on the one true God and you give yourself to him. These other gods are what we would call today idols. Things that we are tempted to value supremely. In this excellent book, and here's your second book recommendation for the day, this book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. I've referenced it before. I think it is the most well-written, clear, concise treatment of idolatry in the modern world that I have ever read. I strongly recommend it to you. He says things better than just about anyone else. I regret reading it because then I can't plagiarize him, but I wish I'd said those things because it's so clear. In his book, he calls these idols or other gods ultimate things. He says that it's our human nature to take good things and love them and prize them so much we turn them into ultimate things. And when we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, it is no longer prizing and valuing. It becomes worship. It is what we spend our whole lives gaining, acquiring, protecting, pursuing. It is the most valuable thing to us. And if we lose it, there's no recovery from that. Here's what he says about the effect on us when we lose what becomes an idol or an ultimate thing to us. He says, there's a difference between sorrow and despair. 
Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Oh, I lost this, but at least I have that. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. What is that thing which if you lost it, you would be undone? There's no recovery. I, mean, I remember in the 1920s, late 1920s, when the, the Great Depression fell, it was a common occurrence in New York City to see very wealthy people who had lost so much in the stock market cast themselves out the windows of their buildings. And that's a tragedy for me because you can recover the loss of money, but you cannot recover the loss of life. And yet for those people, that wealth that they had worked so hard to accumulate became not just a good thing, an ultimate thing. They could not conceive of a future on this planet in the wake of that loss. And as a result, they gave up their lives because that life was their fortune. That fortune was their life. That's how you locate the other gods in your life. That thing which if you lost it, there would be no other source of comfort in this world for you. You would walk away from everything else. What is that for us if we have one? And the invitation is to make sure that if there is such a thing which competes with God for that ultimate space in your heart, we do well to put those things in their proper place. Not to get rid of them, not to turn our backs on them, but to receive them as what they are, a gift, a blessing, a good thing, but not an ultimate thing. Because if we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, and that thing is gone, there is no future. There's no recovery. The point is not to add guilt to anything. It is to say this. Here's what Joshua is saying. Only God can bear the weight of all our hopes, all of our, our fears, all of our needs. Only God is reliable enough to bear the weight of that. And if we dare to place anything else in that spot, those things are not reliable in the extreme. The people we treasure can walk away from us or they can be taken from us. The fortunes we accrue can be lost overnight. War could break out, has happened again and again in history, and the house you spent years building is blown up by a bomb, and you're just finding yourself wandering about with a suitcase and all of your possessions in that little thing. Nothing else on this earth can hold the weight of your whole being. And so what Joshua is offering, what God is saying to us is, choose God because there is no better anchor for your soul. Other things are worthy of love and of cherishing, but only God can bear the weight of your whole being. And you anchor yourself to a God who is eternal, unchanging, relentlessly, unconditionally loving towards you, has the power to to, to keep every promise he's ever made. That is a worthy, better anchor for your soul. That's why we put away idols. It's not because God's jealous in the way we would be jealous. It's not because he's petty. It's because he loves us and he says, you cannot afford to live a life where you've anchored your soul to things that are temporary, that are so fleeting, so unreliable. He wants you to have a future and that future has to be anchored to one who is absolutely dependable and never-ending. I'm realizing more and more that for us pastors, the great irony is that the church and our ministry can become that very thing. There's nothing worthy of our whole hopes that's better than God. And so Joshua says, look at the way God has been faithful. 
through your whole life story. And respond to the goodness of that God today by intentionally choosing him and putting aside those other things which you were tempted to put in his place. Now, the part I didn't include in the message, the text that follows, is the people going, yes, we'll follow God. And Joshua goes, you can't follow God. Give me a break. You're just saying that. And no, no, we're serious. He goes, fuck, whatever. And he's having this hilarious argument with them. And finally, he goes, we're serious. And Joshua goes, all right, you better be serious because this is a serious promise you're making. I kind of summarized it, but it's, if you get a chance to read it, it's a pretty funny exchange to read. And I think what Joshua is doing there is saying, I want you to understand how serious this promise actually is. And in verse 24, it says then that Joshua makes a covenant for the people. And that's the last point. I called it raise a stone, and you'll see why in a moment. Joshua makes a covenant between God and the people of Israel. And a covenant is not a familiar word for us, but a covenant is much stronger than a resolution or a goal. Around this time of year, many of us make resolutions and goals. Probably anyone over 40 doesn't anymore because we've learned better. <laughs> but lots of people make resolutions and goals this time of year. And those things are more... Uh, they point to our wishes and our hopes. They point to the imagined and desirable future us we'd like. But a covenant is a very different thing. A covenant is a weighted, seriously considered, and deeply binding promise. It's a promise that has divine weight attached to it. That's why we don't throw the word around loosely. There aren't that many covenants. We have lots of contracts in our world. We have very few covenants. Marriage is one such covenant. Probably the implicit covenant between parent and children is another. But a covenant is a very, very serious two-way promise. It requires total commitment from both parties. And it stipulates that the benefits that are part of that covenant hold only while both parties are fulfilling their part of it. In other words, they're not just promises that are unconditionally guaranteed. They are contingent on both parties honoring their side of the promise with all seriousness and intent. And when the promise is broken by either party, the consequence of that broken promise is very serious as well. Just a bit earlier, in another speech, or possibly an earlier part of the same speech, Joshua says these words to spell out for the Israelites the nature of covenant with God. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That's another way of saying I'm about to die. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. The irony is, that the most reliable way to hang on to the good gifts of God is to not make them ultimate things, is to treasure the God who is the giver of all things above every other thing, to worship only God and never worship anything or anyone else. And the promise of God is if we will bind ourselves to him in this covenant, His binding himself to us will be relentless. It will be faithful, unfailing. And that's the part we love as modern evangelicals. We love the promises of God and his kindness and his mercy. But there's another side of God we cannot ignore or else he is no longer a God worth following. 
If you had a friend who every time you were late or you blew him off, he's like, whatever, it's okay. That friendship won't last because you won't take him seriously anymore. What you need is a friend who goes, hey, that was really hurtful. I was expecting you to show up and you didn't come. I thought we were friends. That's a real friend. They take your presence, your faithfulness seriously, and they take your betrayals seriously. You don't value people who you can betray without consequence. That's not a real relationship at all. And it's no less true with God. We major on holding God to all his promises to us. But he says, I am calling you also to take very seriously your covenant with me. I won't be sharing your heart with anyone else. Put aside your other gods and serve me and only me. This is our covenant today. I will bind myself to you. You will bind yourself to me. This is the invitation of God. It is not simply expect the unconditional, never-ending flow of blessing no matter what. It is this. The love of God is unconditional. But the blessings and promises of God have always been conditional. It's God whose job, whose responsibility it is to look after your wellness, to show love to you, to protect you, to provide for you. It is not your job to do those things and guarantee them for yourself because you are powerless ultimately to do that. And his invitation to you in this covenant is bind yourself to me and I will bind myself to you. That's the nature of covenant between God and Israel. But Jesus didn't obliterate that system. He fulfilled it. In fact, whenever we take communion, that's the thing that we celebrate. Jesus himself said it, this is the seal of the new covenant between God and you in my blood. What we celebrate at communion is that through his sacrifice, Jesus sealed this deep, solemn promise between us and God that we would belong to him and he would belong to us. There is no real thing called nominal Christianity. That's like being kind of pregnant. You can't. What God asks us for is all of ourselves. And that's why the choice presented is either the other gods available in this world or the one true God. And both is not a choice because they won't share you with one another. The other gods of this world demand the totality of your being. And the living God also demands the fullness of your being. He doesn't want to share you with another. And so he offers the whole of himself in the person of Jesus to you. And the invitation now is to offer the whole of yourself to him. Church, I I love our church. And I don't mean it like as an organization. I've walked with many of you for a long time. I, I do care what happens to all of us. And I care about what happens to us in the temporary, fleeting nature of this earthly life. But even more, I care where we stand with the living God. I don't want us to waste our years having made another choice and not acknowledging that other choice. Believing that somehow we can keep both God and the other gods in our lives and within our hands reach at the same time. It is not true that that's possible. I don't ever want to preach in a way that offers the impression that's possible. God asks for all of us, the fullness of our being. He invites us to covenant, and that's what makes me want to worship him, is that is what a real God would do. He wouldn't ask that we would make him our hobby or our pastime. He would say, I am everything. You come and give me everything. And he doesn't have to add this last part, but he says, and I also then will give you the fullness of myself. Let me close this way quickly. Joshua does two things. Because it was customary in those days that when a covenant is made, much the way we sign contracts, there has to be a physical representation of that promise that's being made. These rings that we wear after we get married, that's a symbol of a physical covenant representation. I lost mine. 
So I bought this on Amazon. I just started wearing it again. But it's an important symbol, okay? It doesn't make me merry. It just reminds me that I am. It's, it's a constant daily reminder that I have to honor what this thing represents. And so Joshua does a couple things. The first thing he does is he writes everything in the book of the law. They had a community Bible, a scroll, and in that scroll they would record the annals of their history. And on that day, as all the people solemnly considered it, as he said, you can't, and they said, yes, we can. No, you can't. Yes, we can. All right, I'm writing it. I'm writing it. God, all these people said today that they will choose you. Some comfortable days are coming. Days of plenty, days of victory, days of rest and ease, and they will be sorely tempted to forget, I'm writing this down. And there's something powerful about when you write something down, isn't there? It's now, it, it exists as a record, and not just as legally uh, viable stuff to hold against you, but it is a place that they looked frequently. It's a constant reminder and inspiration to honor that promise. Then he raised a large stone and put it under a sacred tree, and he said, this is a site that people will pilgrimage to. They will walk past all the time, and when they see that tall stone, they will remember the promise they're making, and they will even tell their children, you know that rock right there? Rocks don't just lean up against trees by nature. Someone put that there for a reason. Let me tell you the story. And they will remember what they felt that day when they were hungry and raw and still settling the promised land, and years later when they have 18 franchises and a huge business and they live in comfort, they will walk past that tree and still remember that one day a long time ago, they promised God that he would have all of them. These stones are important. These monuments, these memorials that are physical are important so that we can continue again and again to choose God. They remind us of something we've done. Can I encourage you, if you're willing to make a renewal of your commitment and covenant with God as we enter the new year, if you're willing to embark on that journey, do something physical to represent it. Some people choose for the first time in their lives to be baptized publicly as a symbol of that journey, that milestone. Other people write down a journal entry and share it with a trusted friend because if writing something down makes it real, letting someone else read it makes it a thousand times more real. Maybe it's a piece of art that you display in a very prominent spot in your house where you see it all the time, and while it may not mean that much to everyone else, every time you look at it, you'll remember the promise you're making. Maybe it's the dramatic putting away of something that you want to see die in your life. A habit, a vice. I've known many people on the day they renew their commitment, though we as Christians are free to drink alcohol, that was their idol, and they took every liquor bottle in the house, poured it in their backyard. Big bald patch in the lawn, but you know, like, they just got rid of it. It was a symbol. It's like, this is my new beginning. I'm doing a physical act to mark what is happening inside. I even had a friend who got a tattoo the first and only tattoo ever on his arm to mark this important day of spiritual renewal. I actually think that's kind of cool. I saw his tattoo. I took a photo of it. If and when I get my first and only tattoo, it's going to be the exact same piece of art. It's the Lion of Judah. It's awesome. Whatever it is that's meaningful to you, don't just make a quiet, secret, internal promise. That's the first place it should happen, is between you and God But do something that will remind you often that I said yes to God on this day. And I meant it. Because there will come a day when I'm sorely tempted to forget what I said. I mean it with my whole being now, but tomorrow I might forget. Many of us in this room once made a life-changing commitment to God. We said a big yes to Him, and that laid an important foundation for our lives. Jesus responded to that big yes by coming into our lives and binding himself to us. He holds on to us tightly. You don't have to doubt that first big yes which you said to Jesus. But like any relationship, we don't just choose once. We choose again and again and again. That's why at times of the year like this, We offer that encouragement, that invitation. Renew your covenant commitment to the one true God. Because otherwise, 
we will be in danger of living for tomorrow and today on the fumes of yesterday's promises. And that doesn't work. Choose for yourselves this day who you will live for. Choose. That's the invitation. Don't sit on the fence. Don't try to straddle both sides. Choose. Somewhere in the depth of your heart, choose. Why don't we pray? There's so much that's not being said in a message like this. There are private battles many of us are fighting, searching desperately for God in a reduced capacity to see Him. God has things to say to you in that situation as well. But this morning, I ask you to hear only what was said. Whatever your state, you have the ability today to make a concrete choice at some level who and what you will live your life for. Don't assume by default that it is God. Choose today. You say to God in your heart, I choose you again. God, I want to follow you. I said it once a long time ago, and I meant it with all my heart. Help me say it again today, whatever it costs me. You come first. You are ultimate. You are the anchor for my soul. I'm going to leave you with that, give you a minute of silence. Say what you need to say to God. Hear his voice in you. And then we'll close out our service with a song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.